Welcome to this edition of Maine the Way Life Could Be. I'm Amy Brown. And I'm Jim Campbell. At the outset of this series, we invited anyone interested to participate in a Zoom call to help us gather information on what folks saw as major challenges facing Maine people during the lifetime of those alive today. One of those challenges mentioned by several of the participants on that call was affordable and accessible health care. It's important to know right at the beginning of today's program that health care and health insurance are two different things that are sometimes conflated. Health care refers to the care that providers such as doctors, nurses, therapists, and others provide to people with health issues. How to pay for that care is a separate challenge. On today's program, we will speak with two retired physicians who, over long careers, took somewhat different paths, but wound up at the same conclusion about how to provide Maine people and all Americans with affordable, accessible health care. First, let's set the context and look at some numbers which will help us to get a sense of our present health care delivery system and its results. Many of us have heard and many believe that our U.S. healthcare system is the best in the world. However, that's a difficult claim to support when looking at the outcomes of our system compared with the rest of the advanced economic countries in the world. While numbers can be difficult to wrap our heads around at first hearing, they can be very helpful in making comparisons with other healthcare delivery systems around the world. The U.S. healthcare system ranks number one in two and in only two key categories, the amount we spend on healthcare and the amount we spend on the administration of healthcare payments. The U.S. spends an average of $12,318 per capita on healthcare costs. That's the highest amount of any developed country in the world. If we exclude the U.S., then the average spent by 12 other wealthy countries on healthcare is $5,829. In other words, less than half of what we spend in this country. And in terms of how much it costs to administer that level of spending, the U.S. is once again at the top of the list. We spend an average of $1,055 per capita on administrative costs. The next 12 countries spend, on average, $194 on administrative costs, or about one-fifth of what we spend in this country. This amount spent on administrative costs is, by the way, less than we spend on long-term care or on preventative care. Total spending on health care, of course, does not tell us anything on its own. Perhaps that level of spending leads to the best medical outcomes in the world. Unfortunately, that's not the case. In fact, the U.S. is way below average in health care results in critical areas such as life expectancy, infant mortality, where we rank 38th in the world, safety during childbirth, or management of diabetes. These figures, by the way, are from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development from June of 2022. Using a number of other comparative indexes, such as the Bloomberg Global Health Index, the World Population Review, and others, the U.S. does not appear in the top 10 countries of the world in terms of healthcare outcome in any of those comparative rankings, and sometimes ranks as low as 35th overall in the world. It seems that the high amount of money spent on healthcare in the U.S., both in absolute dollars and as a percentage of gross national product, the highest in the developed world in both cases, is not leading to better healthcare for Americans. 
but those costs do result in a less desirable outcome, medical debt, which among other things is a leading contributor to bankruptcy filings in the US. Consider the following information about medical costs and their impacts taken from the National Bankruptcy Forum website in October of 2021. About one in 10 adults delay medical care because of cost. 7% of adults struggling with medical bills over the past two years have declared bankruptcy. Despite ACA, the Affordable Care Act, health insurance has become less affordable since 2015. In short, we have a healthcare system which costs an enormous amount, but which does not result in high quality outcomes on average for all Americans. What can we do about that? Dr. Phil Caper and Dr. Jeff Gratwick have come to similar answers to that question. Both have been physicians for over 50 years. Dr. Gratwick practiced medicine with a specialty in rheumatology in the Bangor area and in clinics across Maine for over 40 years. He eventually became so concerned about what he saw as problems with Mainers getting access to quality health care that he ran for the Maine Senate after serving nine years on the Bangor City Council. He served four terms in the Maine Senate before leaving because of term limits and while there served on the opioid task force as well as several legislative committees. He was a key player in establishing the state's healthcare task force, which has been charged with determining how to make healthcare in Maine universal, affordable, accessible, and of high quality. Dr. Phil Caper, in addition to practicing as a physician, spent a good part of his career in policy areas related to healthcare. From 1971 to 1976, he was a professional staff member on the United States Senate Labor and Public Welfare Subcommittee on Health. He served on the National Council on Health Planning and Development from 1977 to 1984, chairing that panel from 1980 to 1984. He's also taught at Dartmouth Medical School, the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and the Harvard School of Public Health, and worked in private industry trying to improve the technology used in hospital medical records. We'll hear from Dr. Gratwick later in the program. We begin now with part of our conversation with Dr. Phil Caper. If you had to look ahead, what do you see in terms of healthcare in Maine, or does it depend? Well, I think it depends. There are a number of paths we could take. We could continue to tinker with the existing system and try to make it better incrementally because it badly needs to be better than it is now, even though there are all the elements of a great healthcare system in the state. We're not quite there yet. Problem is the system set up to deliver healthcare in the United States, it's not limited to Maine, is dysfunctional. And I would almost say that it's uh, corrupt in the sense that it promises to be doing one thing and it's doing something a little different. What does it promise to do that it isn't doing in your estimation? Well, the promise is that it'll be accessible to everybody, affordable to everybody, and high quality. And it is none of those things right now. Even though we've had many attempts in this country and in Maine to reform it, not enough has been done. But it's feasible to create a system which really works for the patients. The underlying problem with the system, I tend to think of it as the underlying pathology 
that produces the signs and symptoms we see, such as out-of-control costs or inadequate coverage, less than excellent quality, and so on. Those are symptoms. And the symptoms are the result of considering healthcare, as is true in all the United States, as a business. And we think of a business as an entity created to uh, create wealth for its owners. All businesses do that. And if they're successful, they'll create wealth for their owners. But healthcare, like many other things, is more than just a business. It's a calling. It has a mission. And the mission, ideally, would be focused on the welfare of the patient. We have some excellent doctors here in Maine. We have some very good hospitals, but they're not, they don't always focus on the patients. There's too much focus on the business of medicine and therefore too much focus on money versus the welfare of the patients. And no matter how conscientious the doctors are and the nurses are, and they are, most of them are very conscientious, they're swimming upstream every day trying to fight with a system which has quite a different goal. And that goal is basically the transfer of wealth from patients and people who advocate for patients to the deliverers of care. And that includes the hospitals, the drug companies, and so on and so forth. And that is a problem that can't be overcome without essentially changing the focus of the system back to what it used to be when I was in training 50 years ago. Put the patient first. That's what I was taught. We sometimes say we do that, but in fact we're driven by the incentives in the system to worry much more about profitability, and that influences everyone in the system, the doctors, the managers, and everybody else. You mentioned that 50 years ago when you were in training to be a physician, the mantra was put the patient first. Yes. But it was still the same kind of system that we have today, wasn't it? If it was, what has changed? Well, it was in a sense, but the, what has changed is the gradual but steady encroachment of publicly traded, for-profit, national and international companies into the driver's seat in medicine. And that's what we have today. So the doctors can't always do what they think or what we think is best for the patients. We have to get the permission of insurance companies, which are profit-driven, to cover a service we recommend. And that is, in my opinion, the single most important element in the high rate of physician burnout in this country. Were issues with the for-profit-driven care the driver behind managed care? No, it wasn't, actually. Managed care was uh, created during the Nixon administration. And when Richard Nixon became president, he had a three-legged stool, as he called it, for health care reform. The first leg was national health insurance. And believe it or not, Richard Nixon, a Republican, proposed a pretty good national health insurance program. The second leg of the stool was creating a larger federal investment in doctors, nurses, and other health care professionals. And the third leg of the stool was reorganizing the delivery system, that is, the way doctors and nurses and hospitals are organized to deliver care. 
And that was a time when I was actually working as a professional staff of the United States Senate. And we actually enacted two of the three legs. That was the Health Professions Education Act of 1971, the HMO Act of 1973, which is what the managed care is all about, and finally, national health insurance, which we were never able to get. But there were three complementary initiatives, and the uh, managed care was just one of the three legs. And they were designed originally to work together, not to be either or. And it was a pretty good platform, but we were never able to get the national health insurance, partially because of the insurance companies, which were mostly nonprofit in those days, were opposed to the government getting into their business. And uh, more importantly is the consistent and tenacious opposition of the medical profession, represented by the AMA, which was successful in keeping this country from getting national health insurance. And that now makes the United States the only wealthy democracy in the world without a universal entitlement to health insurance. You mentioned that the AMA and, and doctors were opposed to this. Is that still the case? Well, some of them are, but actually most of them are not. The main medical association is in the process of reevaluating and restructuring their health policy mission. And as part of that effort, and I'm on the committee of the medical association that's dealing with this, part of that effort we did a poll all the members of the Maine Medical Association, and we asked them the question, did they prefer our current system of mixed private, public, mixed profit, non-profit insurance plans? Do they prefer that, or would they prefer a government-run health insurance program? And the response, which was consistent with other polls they've taken in recent years, was that about 65% of the doctors said they preferred what we would call a single-payer system. And the young doctors, the residents and students, it was something in the neighborhood of 80% preferred a single-payer system. So I would say that now, at least in Maine, the doctors are mostly in favor of replacing our current insurance system with, with a uh, government-run system. If you look at a company in business to do something, you have to ask, why do they exist? And either if you're an Anthem or a United Healthcare or any of the other HCA big insurance companies or hospital companies, they exist as investor-owned entities to create wealth for their owners, which is what they should be doing as a for-profit company. The government, on the other hand, whether it's the VA, Medicaid, Medicare, community health centers, government-funded, their mission is to facilitate access to medical care for their beneficiaries. So there are fundamental differences in mission. When these two missions clash, that is, the profit motive overtakes the clinical focus on the patient, that's where the problems come in. So what is the solution to that problem in your estimation? The solution is to uh, eliminate those entities whose primary mission is anything other than the benefit of the patient. So you have to start with what is the mission of this enterprise. If you're running a publicly traded company, 
your mission is to keep the stock price going up every single year. So you have to focus on cutting costs and on other ways of reducing expenses, denying claims, you know, delaying the payment of claims, whatever it takes to make sure that the company retains as much of the premium dollar as possible. And that's quite different than Medicare. Medicare is tax-funded. It's a, just a way of prepaying medical care. It's very much like Social Security in that sense. And that is you pay into it while you're working and able to, and then when you need it, it's there. It's prepayment for your own security and future. I think a lot of people don't understand how Medicare is funded. And even when they look at their pay stub, they don't necessarily understand that the taxes withdrawn are for Social Security, yes, or for unemployment, yes, but also for Medicare funding. Right. You have to think of it as an investment. Is it socialism? Well, we're accused of of it being socialism, but I would apply. Are our public schools socialism? Are our police forces socialism? Are our libraries, public libraries socialism? Are our roads socialism? You know, if they're all socialism, then I guess Medicare is too. But it's the kind of socialism people like. They don't like paying taxes, but they like the benefits they get. Now, you mentioned that there are three considerations in terms of access to medical care. And one of those is cost, and one of those is availability, and one of those is quality. And you said that we're falling short in all of those areas, yet we constantly hear in the media, for example, that the quality of medical care in the United States is people come from all over the world to come here because they want to get this quality of medical care. Is, Is that not correct? That's a fairy tale. And the reason it's a fairy tale is because if you're very wealthy and you can afford to pay out of your pocket for medical care, you can get access to the best medical care in the world. I mean, medical care in the United States is roughly double the cost of that in, in any other wealthy country. Most people can't afford a hospital bill. Most people can't afford an unexpected expense of $500. And if you go to the hospital or the emergency room and you get a bill for $10,000 for sewing up the laceration or something, most people can't reach down into their pockets and come up with that. So if you're very wealthy, yeah, we have the best medical care in the world, but we're talking about the 1% here. Most people, medical care has become so expensive, and affordability is, is a very important. You know, most politicians will say they're in favor of health care that is affordable and accessible and of high quality for everyone. But then they uh, tend to oppose any way we get there from here. They don't want to raise taxes. They don't want a government-run system. A lot of the opposition comes from people who are doing very well under the status quo. Who's doing very well, you might ask? Well, for the most part, it's not the patients. And for the most part, it's not the doctors. It's the large corporate entities. And if you say, well, we're for spending twice as much as anybody else on medical care in this country... Where's the money going if we're not getting the best care for everybody? And I would suggest you take a look at the market capitalization 
of the large publicly traded healthcare companies, the insurance companies, the drug companies, the medical device companies, the hospital chains, and so on. They are doing very, very well. You're listening to Made the Way Life Could Be on WERU-FM with hosts Amy Brown and Jim Campbell. Our guests today are doctors Phil Caper and Jeff Gratwick, and we are talking about the future of health care and health care coverage here in Maine. Since there are so many different components here that you just mentioned four of, and there are, of course, many insurance companies, many insurance companies covering medical care, If those all went away overnight, that would leave a big hole in the economy, for one thing. But it wouldn't necessarily solve the problem of, say, pharmaceutical costs, for example. It wouldn't deal with the costs of medical appliances that you mentioned, for example. So how would you imagine that a, I believe you used the term single-payer medical system, that offered universal coverage to everyone in the country. How would you imagine that that, that might work? Well, it's, it's not all that complicated. They would, the, the Medicare would set the prices for the pharmaceuticals. And, of course, that whole idea drives the pharmaceutical companies crazy. They are among the largest lobbyists in the country. They have a lot of political influence because they have a lot of money. But don't forget, we live in a country where corporations are considered to be people, according to the Supreme Court, and money is equal to speech. And we have the First Amendment that protects freedom of speech, including commercial speech. We're the only country in the world where that's the case. We're the only one, there are only two countries in the world that allow, for example, direct-to-consumer advertising for prescription drugs. And anybody who watches television on Sunday morning, you see one drug ad, ad after another. Healthcare is not like computers or cars or houses or anything else in a free market. I'm not against markets, but I am against markets where the customer, in this case the patient, has no power. And the patient has no power because they have not enough information and because they may be frightened when they're having to make a decision about what kind of service to buy and where to get it. And they don't have the technical knowledge. That's why they go to the doctor. And it's the belief on the part of the public that doctors are working in the interest of the patient that give us, the doctors, our status and our high incomes that come with that status and the trust of the public. And if we ever lose that, and we're in the process of doing it, all, all that other stuff is going to go away. You mentioned earlier that if we were ever to have a single-payer system, for example, looking forward here in Maine uh, 20 years hence, that there is any sort of reasonable expectation that a system which you think is, would be far superior would actually come to be. Well, actually, to be is an interesting term, because I'm confident after 50 years of my experience in medicine as a businessman, I ran a for-profit health data company for 15 years. As a policymaker, I worked in the U.S. Congress for five years. 
and as a clinician, confident that we could have a system. Problem that is 95% political and 5% technical and really isn't fiscal at all because every responsible study that's been done, and several have been done in Maine, show that on the order of 10% of our total spending in healthcare would be eliminated by simply simplifying the payment mechanism. We, we don't need 100 or 1,000 insurance companies. Medicare is an example of a program that's been very successful, is now over 50 years old, and is, is an example of a public policy that works. Medicare is the prime reason more seniors in this country aren't in poverty. If it weren't for Medicare, we'd have a huge number of seniors in poverty. Medicare doesn't exist, and once we start getting to the age where we need more and more medical care, uh, we find we can't pay for it if it weren't for Medicare. And it's been a very popular program, so I'm convinced it would work. I'm not convinced that we have a political system that's capable of making the kind of large-scale change we're advocating. When I was working on national health insurance in the 1970s, the national expenditure on medical care, total spending throughout the country, was $107 billion a year, which to me seemed like a lot of money. And I said, you know, how much higher could it be before people begin to push back? Okay, well, we're now spending $3.5 trillion on medical care in this country. And that's happened over the last 50 years because there are no meaningful cost restraints. And we still don't have universal coverage. We still have um, costs that are out of control. Warren Buffett, who's, who knows a lot about the American economy, described the healthcare system as a tapeworm in the gut of American business. The rate of burnout of physicians and other healthcare professionals, including nurses, you read about nurses' strikes all the time. And the, the nurses' strikes are, of course, about what nurses are paid, and I think they are underpaid, but also working conditions and the quality of care they're able to provide, which comes out as, as staffing ratios. There aren't enough nurses to do the work in the uh, recent pandemic that we're still in the middle of, incidentally is a uh, kind of a stress test on the healthcare system. And a lot of nurses are retiring. I mean, something like 40% of nurses plan to retire in the next five years. So how are we going to replace that workforce? And what about rural hospitals that are dependent upon, heavily upon uh, main care or Medicaid, which is seen as a program for poor people and not very well re reimbursed? They're facing bankruptcy. Many of hospitals are being driven out of existence. And that would not happen if everybody was in the same program, rich and poor and so on, because then the providers, which was what doctors and nurses are now called, would be well treated. You can't afford to lose your doctors and nurses from your healthcare system. And the public would support that. When you're talking about affordability and accessibility, which have to go together, the accessibility depends upon there being enough, what you are now we're, we're referring to as providers. 
And I just saw an article in one of the papers this morning indicating that it looks like in the United States over the next decade to decade and a half, that there will be a shortage of somewhere between 28 and 48,000. Would this in any way speak to that problem? And you're losing doctors. You know, this the poll I talked about that the May Medical Association did wasn't just a list of questions. It was uh, an opportunity for the respondents who answered the, the uh, poll to just write an essay about what they thought was wrong with the healthcare system. And the level of discontent among doctors, practicing doctors, with our current healthcare system is just stunning. I mean, that's what stuck out of the whole exercise, was how unhappy, for a variety of reasons, the doctors are with the current system, and how many of them are contemplating leaving practice. One of our critics often say, well, if you had state-run medical care in Maine, all the doctors would leave the state. Well, what we found in that poll is just the opposite, you know, because I would be able, they say, to practice medicine. I wouldn't have to spend my day answering questions and arguing with insurance companies. And it's not just the administrative time they lose, but it's the moral injury they suffer by by constantly having to justify everything they want to do. Every time you order a test or recommend a procedure, the turndown rate by the insurance company is high. And you have to go through the exercise of persuading them that your patient and your clinical judgment should determine what kinds of services a patient gets, not some insurance company hundreds of miles away. And that's what really grabs the doctors. And the same is true with the nurses. I mean, they're, they're the heroes because they've really come out and advocated for a single-payer or publicly run, publicly funded system. And if you think about the term, you know, healthcare has to be affordable, what does that mean? Affordable to who? I mean, what's affordable to me may not be affordable to somebody else. So the only way to finance a system that covers everybody and is affordable to everybody is through a progressive tax system which is what every other country in the world relies on to cover all their, their people. What did the pandemic change in terms of trends in healthcare? Things like the increased use of telemedicine, and will those changes continue in the future? Well, you know, that's a, an interesting question, and it's a good question. And I think that telemedicine can be a very uh, valuable tool. And electronic medical records can be a very valuable tool. But the real question is, what is the motivation of the people using that tool? If you're a publicly traded company running a hospital chain, for example, you're going to try to use those tools to reduce your costs and therefore increase your profitability without necessarily improving or maybe making worse the quality of care to the patient. And in fact, our results in the United States, contrary to what most people think, are poorer than any other country, wealthy democracy in the world. We get poorer results, despite the fact we spend almost twice as much as any other country in the world. But we also are the only wealthy country with a declining life expectancy. And that's now been 
shown over and over over the past five years. So our life expectancy, our maternal mortality rate, as high or higher than developing countries, focused on people of color who are poor. So you have to ask, where is all the money going? And you get back to the same answer. It's going to Wall Street. And you have to make a choice at some point. And every other wealthy country in the world has made the choice. Healthcare is about patient welfare, not about shareholder value. That was Dr. Phil Caper offering his ideas on how to improve access to healthcare for all Maine people through universal healthcare coverage. This is Maine the Way Life Could Be on Community Radio WERU-FM. We turn now to thoughts on the same subject from Dr. Jeff Gratwick, another now-retired physician who, based on his experience practicing in Maine for over 40 years, has come to a similar conclusion to Dr. Capers. What would you say is the goal of health care? I spent my life here in Bangor for the last 40 years being a doctor trying to uh, get people healthy. And I think that the goal of healthcare in Maine should be to make Maine the healthiest state in the United States. And I'm basically an optimist, and I think we can do this. It's not going to be easy. But having been a doctor, I've been trying to get individuals healthy, but then realizing that our individual health is very important, but we're really all dependent on each other. Because if you're not healthy, that's going to have an impact on me and, and vice versa. And so my goal really is to bring good health to everybody in Maine. And the reasons for that are both for practical and then ethical and moral. The practical, of course, has to do with having everybody be able to work at a job, go to school, take care of their family, and not be in hospitals, not be in a back sick room. It's very good for business, have healthy people who can work there. I want Maine to be known not only for the place you can get good lobsters, but where we have healthy people. And so I want young people to move here because this is a healthy environment. So the answer is the goal has to be bring good health to everybody in Maine. And how would you say we can do that? Well, um, that's a, a very long, long list. There are many, many aspects of that. Many people have worked on it in different kinds of ways. The business community, from the insurance community, from the health healthcare community, each have their own opinions. And my sense is that really since the Second World War and the rise of private insurance as being the way that healthcare is organized, is a profit motive. I think that here in Maine and other places, we give too much of our hard-earned money to insurance executives, to hospital executives, to medical device manufacturers, and we, we waste an enormous amount of money. And not to bore you with statistics, but in Europe, they spend roughly 8 to 12% of their uh, gross national product on health. And here in the United States, it's 18 or 19%, and in Maine, it's nearer to 28 to 30%. That's an enormous amount of money. Leaving aside for a moment how the health care delivery is paid for, what do you see as possible in that way in the future in a state that is very rural, that has difficulty attracting healthcare professional providers, and that is not gaining population and has very old population, the oldest in the country overall, in fact? 
what are the challenges to delivering the kind of healthy state that you think we should be aspiring to? Well, I think the major challenge, I think that's a, it's a very interesting and very complex question. And the major challenge is we have to be able, we have to conceptualize what we're doing in a different way than we've done in the past. So I think the way we pay for health care and the delivery of health care are actually inextricably joined at the hip because if we decide we're going to pay for health care in big hospitals and we're going to pay for your or my cardiac stent, if we want to have lots of good high-tech medicine, all very well and good, well, it means we're not spending our money on prevention. In order to do that, we have to change the direction of the way we're funneling money into our system. We can't just be giving it to pharmaceutical companies, to big hospital chains, to insurance companies. And I think we can do much better. We can, and the money we would save there would go towards making it more attractive for a doctor, for a nurse, for a health aide to be in a rural community. By reallocating our funds and our perspective, we can actually improve the health of people in rural Maine. For me, Maine is basically a rural state. It's an older state. It's a rural state. It's a very beautiful state. And I want people to be able to stay in Presque Isle or Jonesport or Stanford, whatever, and not have to go to a big city for all their health care needs. You're listening to Maine the Way Life Could Be. I'm Amy Brown here with co-host Jim Campbell. And today we are talking about the future of health care and health care coverage in Maine. One of the questions that comes up and that doesn't really get discussed very much is how we can understand what the health care needs of Maine, let's say over the next 20 years might be. How might they be different? if they would be, from what we have now. I practiced medicine for 40 years here in Bangor on a one-on-one basis. So a patient came into my office and they either stayed for 20 minutes or they stayed for an hour hour or more. And it was a one-on-one basis, and that was the way I sort of thought. But at the end of my time there, because I'm now retired, I became disillusioned. There were too many problems were escaping, and while I tried to do my very best on each of the individuals that came into my office, nonetheless, there were whole groups of people that didn't get into my office. We can do much better for them. And there was this very interesting needs assessment that was funded and then recently published by the state, which talks about the needs of a number of different subgroups of people of color here in Maine do not have as good health as white people. People with hearing problems, 20% of people who have hearing problems actually can get to an audiologist and get hearing aids. But so people of color, people with hearing, the disabled, certainly a major problem, as they are in many places, but 15 to 20% of Mainers are disabled, and I think their health care is not as good. We're aware of immigrants. I don't think we do as good a job with them as they're our future citizens. We have to do well. The homeless are, are with us, like it or not, for now. The LGBTQ group is certainly as good because it, it stands up for itself and protests, but for a long time, that, that group is, has not had appropriate care directed towards it. Low-income people are interesting and difficult. Main care, which is Medicaid, which is a federal program for low-income people, 
is actually a very good program, and we've had it for a long time. Curiously, this makes no sense at all. If you're too poor, if you're earning less than $11,000 a year, you're not eligible for main care. In other words, we're not taking care of low-income people. Elderly people, obviously, are doing better because of the Medicare. That's been around now for almost 50 years. I think we're all aware of the major problems with the mental Mental illness. Mental illness is something that affects up to a third of us at any one time or other. Treatment for that is suboptimal. We don't we don't have enough people, enough practitioners who are really helping with this major crisis. So these are all areas where our current system is just not doing well enough. And I think we have to realize we're all in this together. Convinces a common humanity that we've got to get back to. Start to make sure that of all the areas of our communal life, important of good roads and good schools and so forth, but we have to have good health. That's what life depends on. It. So my hope in the future is that we're going to have more programs that are going to be focused on those folks. The idea of approaching different aspects of healthcare, whether it's for a particular group, those groups you've just mentioned, or for some overall system problem. You talk about the difference between getting healthcare in a rural area versus getting it in an urban area with big hospitals and so forth. What would be your vision, let's put it that way, that would solve some of these difficulties that you're identifying? Well, now, before I answer that, I'm going to ask you to give me a magic wand. I'll give you the perfect answer. All these questions about healthcare are complex. As you look to the future, the first thing you could do is do nothing. We can do just as what we've been doing right along. And, um, you know, it keeps, it probably keeps about half of the people in Maine quite well satisfied. They have insurance to work and they live fairly close to their doctor. And why rock the boat? I'm doing okay. I don't care about you kind of thing. That's, we can continue to do the same thing, but continue to do the same thing and hope for a different result is a definition of insanity. If we're going to have a better system, if we're going to leave the world better for our kids, we've, we've got to do something. Can I go back to something you were speaking about earlier? I just wanted to uh, kind of drill down and get a little bit concrete about the increasing elder population. So people are starting to be in an age group where they have more health issues that need to be dealt with. And a lot of folks in Maine have always lived in very rural areas and commuted for their health care. Telemedicine is being used to try to bridge some of that gap. If you have any thoughts about how effective that might be, if you were someone who was you know, maybe approaching retirement age and living somewhere out in uh, the middle of Piscataquis County, would you stay where you were and hope that things got better at this point? Or do you think that looking forward, those folks are probably going to do best if they tried to move towards town? And that ties in, obviously, with housing, which is a whole other issue. But so two, two questions. One, to take the, the easy answer first, telehealth and then also various kinds of video, Zoom, et cetera, so one can contact one's health care providers, I think have great promise. Not quite the same as looking somebody in the eye and touching them, etc. Uh, but it's really very good. The second thing is how to have Maine be a place that you would like to practice medicine becomes attractive. The major disincentive for most practitioners, doctors, nurses, whatever, is the bureaucracy and the record-keeping and the insurance company hassles that you 
are faced with. And I think if we can begin to deal with some of those structural issues, this would be a wonderful place to practice medicine. Medicine is about dealing with people. They're really good people here. And if you are free of some of the bureaucratic, onerous insurance company regulations, that would make an enormous difference. Will everybody want to go out and practice on Final Haven or Matinicus? That's a little unclear. Uh, but I think that going to rural Maine, less populated areas, is very a very attractive option for a lot of people these days. So that's the second point. The third point is to get specialists, good specialists. It's always going to be hard. Part of that is we're going to have to pay adequately the national market. So if I'm a high-powered cardiologist and I can get five times greater salary working in suburban Boston or Chicago or whatever as I can in Maine, it's going to be a hard decision. So I think we have to have good salaries, which means that we have to decrease the amount of money we're wasting. We waste too much money on insurance. I was part of a two-person office, two doctors, and we had one... And six employees, we have one person who did nothing but refile insurance. An enormous amount of hassles are put in your way by insurance companies really detract from the ability of a practitioner to give good care. And so I think that if we had a different arrangement, medical care is paid for, I think it would make it much more attractive to be here. It's a big wish on my part, but we could do it. So what would be your plan? You've mentioned several times that you feel, for example, that insurance companies are getting in the way of being more effective in terms of being able to deliver health care. What sort of system would you propose to either take their place or modify them in some way? Good question, and thank you, because that's really that's an area, this is the area where I really live, and this is the area of been concerned to me for the last 15 years or so, and caused me to run for the legislature. Specifically, we need a system of universal health care. What it would mean that everybody in Maine has health care, um, rich or poor, rural or urban, you have good access, you have uh, limits on what medicines cost, so you're not, you don't have personal bankruptcy because of medical costs. We can be efficient, so you don't have to wait for the barriers to that are political. How would we pay for it? Right now, you pay for your health care via your premium. And premiums are, range anywhere from nine dollars to $11,000 per person. Health care don't come cheap. And so, but we're right now paying for it. If you have a, a company taken out of your salary, money doesn't go to you, it goes to the, the insurance. And so with this, the money would come through taxes, and money would come through taxes on individuals and also on, on businesses. You mentioned that health care is expensive, but part of that expense is the malpractice insurance that the practitioners, the providers have to carry. Part of that is those giant billing departments and, and the insurance companies. I mean, all of that is built into it. But has anybody worked out the numbers in any kind of um, sort of model? I'm going to go back to the larger statistic, which is to say the total cost of all health care in Maine is estimated at 12 to $14 billion. And if you had a system of universal health care, I've heard it's down by $1.6 So let's say, done from 
the 14 to 13 or, or 12 to 11 billion dollars. In other words, there's some savings in there because of efficiencies, because no more outrageous salaries, because you don't have to have so many people working for Northern Light Healthcare, rebuilding, etc. And so there are going to be those savings that will come back to the people. We have to insist that this is money that you, the taxpayer, have paid, and you should be getting back your proportion. Healthcare is never going to be cheap, and we don't want cheap healthcare. We want the best healthcare. That's the way we started off this whole conversation. I, I think we can have the best health care available here in the country. not going to just be geared towards financially well-to-do who can go to Portland or Bangor or go off to Boston for their cardiac care, etc. But it's going to be for the, the whole state and those groups of disadvantaged people we talked about before. Money is going to be available for them to keep them healthy, keep them working, decrease the number of people disabled, making sure they get their insulin. The opponents of our currency is what we need to have competition. America is a capitalist country. We need to have competition because that's going to bring down costs. And that is just plain dead wrong. It has been proven over and over again that really competition gives some high-priced CEO vast amounts of money. Inappropriate in healthcare. And if you want to go earn a lot of money making cars or Teslas or whatever, go for it. But healthcare, which is your life and my life and the life of that poor little old person down the block, that's wrong. We should not have a society like that. And so I really think we can do ever so much better by having this under the control of us, of the people. You mentioned you were an optimist. It's one thing to say we could do so much better, as you just did. How likely do you think that is that it would happen in the next oh, 10 or 20 years? I think you're probably more of a philosopher and a wise man than I. And, <laughs> and, so I return to you for the definitive answer, but I'll give you my feeling. Is right now we have obviously, looking at Maine, looking at Washington, an enormous and increasing cultural divide, and I find it exceedingly troublesome. Uh, my opinion is it won't last. I think that we realize that we're all going to sink or swim together. I think that people are going to realize he can stay like Maine, we're neighbors, neighbors take care of people, and I think we want to make our resources last for a longer period of time. So I, I am an optimist. I think we're going through a very hard patch, all the hoopla over false news and so forth. Another whole topic, and you're going to get another speaker on that, is educating the young. I mean, so they have critical, don't waste so much money off in this healthcare world, uh, we can educate our kids to be better citizens, which is very, very important. I think it's in the news a lot now, and it's a big part of what people are thinking of for health care is whether or not you have any thoughts about what we're looking at with the opioid crisis, if we do manage to get some kind of uh, universal health care program versus what you think may become of that if we don't. Last week in Maine, 17 people died of an overdose. Thousand people a year are, are dying, and programs are beginning to work, but still there's enormous amount to be done. Ways we have to combat this, I think, are with one, much more public education, two, much earlier intervention. It's also older people. The oldest people are in their 60s who are dying of drug overdoses. So we have to be very aware and have better state programs to help people out and often said that drug overdoses are deaths of despair. There's a great deal to that, and I think we have to 
be aware and have conversations about the malaise of our society, about the lack of opportunity for people who have gone through school or maybe not versus earning $1,000 a year versus earning $15 million a year. We have to come to terms with that. And the, the second thing is how we really can begin to organize a better healthcare system. And I think it's going to have to come from the people. I think the people are going to have to vote and say, well, I'm, we're fed up with, with having these high, confusing medical bills uh, for not getting the care we need. And what are you, Mr. and Mrs. State Legislator, or what are you going to do? The voices of the people matter. What is happening that does make you optimistic with so many other things going on in the world right now? Are you still optimistic that this has momentum that will continue to build? This is a, a dismal kind of optimism, which is to say, I think things are going to get worse, so much worse that people are going to say, we've got to have a change. And I think that groundswell is growing. I think people are going to get really frustrated. I want to keep my money for myself. I don't want to give it to all these plutocrats. This is an interesting topic. What does optimism consist of? And I guess I still think that being a human being and being alive and being able to leave the world a better place. So I prefer, I prefer to live my life thinking the future will get better. Just one other thing before we leave here is, is that in terms of optimism, in terms of health, your health and my health, this is an extraordinary time to be involved in health care or to need health care. It is so much better than it's been even 10, 20 years ago in terms of advent of new medications, in terms of transplantation, uh, so kidneys and heart transplants, lung transplants, robotic surgery. So there are a number of different things, and these are not organizational but rather more scientific that, are, that I think are going in the right direction. I think what you're saying is that things will get bad enough so that a change will be necessary. Is that what I hear you saying? I think that's, yes, I think that's the case. I think people are going to get fed up with the inefficiencies and the injustice, the lack of equality and equity in our system. Those people who are often voiceless, we talked about before, are just as good people before God as are you and I. And I think they're going to de demand we have a system that's focused on equity and health care for, for everybody. So in general, to sum it up, the future of healthcare in Maine is problematic. Um, there are many things that organizationally are difficult, but I think there's the potential for having a change. You'll be able to live a good long life in Maine, whether or not you're rich or poor, whether or not you're rural or urban. It's going to be a stuttering advance, but I think we can get there. That was Dr. Jeff Gratwick speaking about his experiences as a physician practitioner and his views on how to improve access to quality health care for Maine people. Both Dr. Gratwick and Dr. Caper are active in Maine All Care, and we'll put a link to that site as well as to all of the other information we've mentioned today on the webpage for today's program in the Public Affairs Archive section of the WERU website at www.weru.org. Not everyone agrees with these two physicians that a single-payer universal health care approach operated by the government would be the best way to provide health care to all. For example, Maine Health CEO Andy Mueller recently told the Portland Press-Herald that, quote, a single-payer health system would not necessarily be an improvement. If the government did not put enough money into the system, there could be massive cuts to health care services. 
that seems like a fair point to make. It's the same point that's often made about Medicare. But voters seem to think that Medicare is valuable, and so far at least, elected officials ultimately listen to voters and keep Medicare operational. And the question of whether a universal health care system would really provide benefits above what are currently available is also an open one. Studies are underway to try to provide some concrete evidence to answer that question. Nationally, for example, a universal health care system could have saved 212,000 lives from COVID in 2020 alone and $105.6 billion in health care costs associated with COVID hospitalizations, according to a study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences from June 13, 2022. During the pandemic in 2020 alone, according to Axios, CEOs of 178 healthcare-related companies were paid collectively $3.2 billion, and 30 of them made more than $30 million each, which is part of what gives the U.S. the highest administrative cost for healthcare in the world, as we mentioned earlier in the program. According to the physicians on today's program, these are costs that would be significantly reduced or largely eliminated under a single-payer universal coverage plan. A 2019 study by the Maine Center for Economic Policy indicated that $1.5 billion per year in Maine alone would be saved in a universal coverage single-payer health care system. Whether or not such a system is adopted for the entire country, it's clear that there are significant shortcomings in the healthcare system we have in the U.S. and here in Maine. Currently, we spend more than any other developed country for healthcare, and we get often poorer results for our dollars. And absent significant change of some sort, there's no indication that things will improve in either measure in the lives of those alive today in Maine. Continuing to look ahead in our series on Maine, the way life could be, our next program in the series will air on Tuesday, October 4th at 4 p.m. In that program, we'll be taking a look at another big issue that's with us now in Maine and will be with us in the near future as well. The issue of how to ensure that there are enough people in the labor force to, for example, take care of Maine's aging population and to staff the stores and factories and trades and schools and government services that will keep the state economy going in the world we live in today and the one that we'll be living in tomorrow. That's it for today's program. Maine the Way Life Could Be is made possible in part by a grant from the Maine Arts Commission. We're Jim Campbell and Amy Brown. Thanks for listening and keep it tuned here to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, streaming live at WERU.org and on the WERU smartphone app.